Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. Today is Wednesday, May the 17th, and we're going to be talking about the leftist zombie apocalypse, the apocalypse of white supremacy and what happens when that narrative falls apart. Inevitably, that narrative has to fall apart because it's based on political talking points. It's based on false and self-serving government statistics, and we're going to dig all into that and tear it apart for you so that when you're out there in the world talking to your friends who seem to believe that there is a white supremacist around every corner, you are not talking to them in an unarmed fashion. We've got the super chat underneath me right now. I see you folks are in there. Thanks so much for joining us live. Remember, you can always join us live at 8.30 Texas America time. That's 9.30 if you're on the right side of the country and it's far too early if you're out in California, Oregon, or Washington. We do appreciate you guys getting in here and joining us. Before we get started, I want to thank our sponsors. We have two of them, and we're going to do them right up front here. Number one, we want to thank Patriot Coolers. You guys are familiar with them already. This is their website, patriotcoolers.com. You can see that they offer soft-sided uh, soft-sided products like the ones that's actually pictured on the Rumble channel now. That is a zip-up, lightweight very functional cooler that will keep up to 10 cans cold. I actually have that one sitting next to me. And uh, for those of you that are interested in a hard tumbler, you've seen it on the show. I use it pretty much everywhere I go. I've taken it to maybe 20 plus states at this point. Um, an excellent product, an excellent company. They put patriotic branding. They give a small percentage of their profits back to disabled veterans, helping them with mobility. It's a fantastic way to go. And then they also support the Kyle Serafin Show. So we're appreciative of them. Check out patriotcoolers.com. You can use promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E, K-Y-L-E, very easy. You'll get 10% off. It's free shipping if you spend more than 50 bucks. It's easy to go on there and find more than $50 worth of stuff you're going to like. And then we're also going to say thank you to catholicvote.org. Catholicvote.org right now is suing the FBI. They're suing them over the infiltration of churches in the Richmond Diocese and the potential that the FBI has been infringing on church civil liberties. This is their website. You can check them out. They have an excellent little um, email chain that you can get on called The Loop. I actually have a coffee mug here. Here, hold on. Let's see this coffee mug. There it is. Look at this. They sent me this little coffee mug. It's got The Loop on it. I actually have some of their um, <laughs> some of their merch hanging out. Uh, great people. They are interested in family, freedom, and faith, things that probably resonate with many of you. You can support them if you want to uh, get into a donation, especially if you want to help support this this uh, ongoing lawsuit and find out just how deeply the FBI's corruption has been going on. Uh, check out their website. If you're Catholic, fantastic. If you're not Catholic and you're a Christian, they're in the same fight as you. They uh, do advocacy for the proper types of positions when it comes to a Christian worldview in our politics. Catholicvote.org. Check them out. All right, let's get rowdy today. We're talking about the zombie apocalypse, and I have experienced it in full form. A zombie is one of these mindless cretins that just sits and uh, the jaw goes, there's no thought process, there's dead meat, but there's walking. Um, many of you have seen these these videos. We all kind of think that it's going to look like the opening uh, scene from I Am Legend, we think that it's going to look like being chased down by these mindless hordes. It probably isn't happening that way. It's happening online. And I'm going to bring up a website here, which will show you Twitter. Twitter is full of zombies. And here is one of them looking a lot like a Klansman. I guess this is our president wearing these robes, getting an honorary degree at Howard University. I want to share with you this video. I'm going to read you what I responded to. And then I'm going to tell you how many people had something nasty to say about it. Let's start off with Joe Biden telling us how dangerous white supremacy is. If you are not watching on our Rumble channel, this is from RNC Research. This is the uh, Republican National Committee's sort of uh, propaganda Twitter handle. Puts out some good stuff. Here's Biden talking right now. So stand up against the poison of white supremacy as I did my inaugural address to a single out 
as the most dangerous terrorist threat to our homeland is white supremacy. And I'm not saying this because I'm at a black HBCU. I say it wherever I go. So stand up. All right. So he's not just saying it because he's at a black H. What is it? HBCU. That just tells you that he doesn't even know what that means. You want to talk about a zombie. HBCU is historically black college and university, which Howard University is. He says, I'm not just saying it because I'm on a, I'm at a black, historically black college and university. That's actually the words if you were to take the acronym. Uh, talk about zombie stuff. So my response to this was pretty straightforward. It's something I shared over the weekend. Uh, some of you heard about this. I, I didn't get to cover it because we had an interview with John Mattingly earlier. And I want to get into it because it just is not going away. Zero believable evidence from this lying fool. Um, I'm somewhat a little bit harsh on Biden these days. Uh, I've worked the so-called white supremacy threat in more than a half dozen states. They were complete fabrications that generated stats without actual danger. Think about how many white supremacists you've met personally. This garnered 2.2 million views. It's still counting. It's easily the largest viewed tweet that I have to date since I've joined social media, and it's a weird experience to have that. It was also a complete ratio, as they say, which is to say only 2,900 people liked it of the 2.2 million. That is an awful lot of angry vitriol and bile. It's gotten uh, almost 1,000 retweets. It got thousands of comments, many of which were angry leftists, many of which were people who are, in fact, zombies. The biggest one was a an account named Kevin Cruz. I have no idea who Kevin Cruz is. 400, 500,000 people do, apparently, and they follow him. And he was able to share this thing in a big way. And his first point was the FBI's own statistics. So let's talk about point number one, if you're going to be a zombie. If you are going to tell me government statistics published by the FBI that benefit the FBI, you are a zombie. It's a simple fact. There is nuts. If you can't believe that, uh, that the government would lie to you at this point, <laughs> there's probably no helping you. You're probably beyond repair, but this is the strategic report that was put up. So if you're watching on the rumble channel, this is a, uh, an FBI.gov document. This is what was cited to me. And if you're not, you can check this thing out, FBI.gov. They have a file repository. And the, the document is referred to as the Strategic Intelligence Assessment and Data on Domestic Terrorism. I'm going to tell you why this is completely bunk. But this is 40 pages written by the FBI and co-authored by the Department of Homeland Security. So let's deal with what they said. This is what they presented to the Permanent Select Subcommittee on Intelligence, the Committee on Homeland Security, and on the Judiciary. This is basically the FBI and DHS justifying their positions when it comes to white supremacy and so on. Essentially, what they do is they define domestic terrorism uh, under 18 USC. They want to make sure that people are able to understand what it is, and that is going to be violent acts that are dangerous to human life, that are a violation of criminal laws in the United States, or would be a violation of criminal laws if they were committed in the United States, that are intended to coerce a population, uh, influence government policy, or affect government conduct by mass destruction, assassination, and kidnapping, and so on. That's actually pretty specific, and it involves violence. And what's fun about white supremacy if there is anything that's funny about it, it's that white supremacy is an idea that is constitutionally protected, although it is full of obviously a-holes who believe so. It is an ignorant position, and it's not something that we need to be hiding. Let those people talk, in my opinion. Give the sunlight to them and destroy it because it's easily burned down. The ideas are ridiculous on their face. Uh, all that being said... This is still the way that they produce it. So they've produced a 40-page document that is going to give you supposedly information. What's funny is no one ever quoted a single bit out of this report. What they know was is the top-line presentation that the report says that there are, in fact, violent extremists who are out there to destroy the U.S. But they didn't quote anything of substance. And some of this stuff you're looking at is it's, it's definitional. So they're going to tell you who the, the threats are to the homeland, in this case, the same threats that they tried to say are inside the Catholic Church when we revealed the radical traditionalist Catholic document back in February. It says ethnic or violent, uh, racially or ethnic 
motivated violent extremists. That's DVEs. They show animal rights groups and environmental extremists. So this should bother people on the left. Abortion-related violent extremists. I guess this could be pro-life or pro-choice, as they state here. You've got your anti-government, anti-authority types. This goes to the Timothy McVeighs, the people that are willing to fight the government, um, that are willing to bomb things to, to get their, their ideas across. And then you have other domestic terrorism threats, which could be related to religion, gender, or sexual orientation, apparently. They go on to say that white supremacy is the biggest one. Here it is. I'm going to read you the line. Since 2017, I don't know why 2017, but oh, oh, yes, I do know, because that's when Donald Trump came into office. So since 2017, DVEs remain a persistent source of violence with racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists advocating for the superiority of the white race and anti-government or anti-authority violent extremists. Notice how they put them together. They put those together because they want you to conflate the idea that white supremacists are people who don't like the United States government, whether the government is right or wrong. That is a big problem. It is a, a significant overlap. And this is the same sort of fallacy that they've done with McVeigh. Timothy McVeigh famously blew up the, the uh, Alfred P. Murray building in Oklahoma City. He did so because he was angry about the government and this tiny little thing that they've tied to him and said that he's a white supremacist, although there's nothing other than this that I could see. And I've done enough reading on it to look. He apparently also liked uh, an online novel or an online uh, written series called The Turner Diaries, which are famously known for some white supremacist ideology. I haven't read them. I don't actually have an interest in it. I have buddies who have read them. They think they're interesting. But what they do more than most things is they get really deep into sort of uh, gun culture and discussing different types of weaponry. And that's apparently what Timothy McVeigh said he was interested in. His own words. He didn't say he was a white supremacist. The thing about white supremacists is they actually will tell you. They will put it out there in the front and say, this is my ideology. This is what I believe. And if they don't say that thing, I think it's probably strange to paint them with that brush. But not if you're the FBI and you're trying to drum up counterterrorism dollars. So um, they say that these anti-government, anti-extremists, um, anarchist violent extremists, that seems like the Antifa types. Uh, many of them are anarchists. Militia violent extremists, this is again right wing, and sovereign citizen violent extremists, again, generally speaking, right wing libertarian types that don't want to be infringed upon, are presenting the greatest threats of violence. This RMVE, this is the racially motivated, are the primary sources. And when you hear RMVE or racially motivated violent extremists, you should be thinking white supremacy because that's what the FBI, that's what the federal government is thinking, DHS and so on. They say that they are the primary sources of lethal and significant violence with lone offenders conducting lethal attacks against targets of opportunity using non-complex attacks and accessible weapons. So that's fancy language, non-complex attacks to say uh, targets of opportunity, people who just popped up and shot up a grocery store, for example, like we found out in Buffalo. Does that mean that this was some sort of mass movement of people trying to go and kill people at grocery stores? I don't think so. But it is good for funding. It says that they assess that the broad drivers of domestic violent extremists, including perceptions of or responses to government activity, social, political, and economic conditions continue to feed this consistent level of domestic violent extremism. Well, the problem with a lot of this stuff, too, is that it's all constitutionally protected speech until you actually start advocating for actual violence with a plan of violence. And that is not very often the case. They go on to talk about the number of actual attacks. I'm going to try to find it in here. But it essentially says that there are 77 deaths associated with white supremacist violence from this is the uh, was dated in 2021. So from this um, 2010 to 2021, an 11-year period, we had 77 total homicides associated with white supremacy violence. And if that seems like a lot to you, you should know that approximately 90 people every year have sort of a Darwin's Award death due to dealing with lawnmowers. As another way to think about it, uh, you have probably a higher likelihood of dying in a car accident with a deer in the United States because deer are constantly on the roadways, particularly in the Northeast. Um, they are even on the roadways here in Texas. People swerve, avoid, or actually hit animals, and specifically deer, more often than they are killed by white supremacy. And that can be a decade versus year comparison, which is to say there are more deaths from impacts with deer on an annual basis than there are in a decade from white supremacy. I just want you to get the statistical fear factor in there that when you're talking about 77 deaths over a period of a decade, 
If you are scared of that, you're also probably more likely to get hit by lightning. So it is not common, but it is a talking point. And that's how you get into the zombie sphere. Um, I want to debunk this right away. Let's debunk it with this article. Now, for starters, this is from a website called justsecurity.org. If you listen to me on the Bongino show, I was on uh, yesterday on his radio show. I've been on a couple other programs and I mentioned this. We're going to get into it a little bit more deeply. But this is Just Security. Before we get started with uh, what they're about, let's talk about who they are. Just Security is an online forum for rigorous analysis of security, democracy, foreign policy, and rights. I talked to Emerald Robinson's producer the other day, and uh, she said anytime you put security and democracy in the same sentence, she thinks they're commies. She's probably right. Uh, but who are these people? They say right away that they are based in the New York University School of Law. If you're not looking at the Rumble page, uh, watching our live show or the replay, then uh, I can refer you to justsecurity.org. You can go to their About Us page and find out exactly what I'm saying. They say that they're grateful from the Craig Newmark uh, philanthropies. Many of you may not remember Craig Newmark, but once I tell you who he is, you will. Craig Newmark founded Craigslist in San Francisco, California, as a way for people to be able to move you know, free services and goods and eventually started making money on posts. He sold his stake for a number of million dollars and started this philanthropies program. He's an avowed left-leaning person. I think he I'm not mad at Craig Newmark, but just what he is. The second support that they are they are happy about is there's Craig Newmark right there. Uh, the second one is the Open Societies Foundation. You may know that the Open Societies Foundation, under who we are, says they're founded by George Soros. Everyone who knows who George Soros is might find that to be a little bit curious. And then lastly, they've got some other pieces here at uh, New York University. It's obviously a, a university system, which makes it left-leaning. It's in New York, which makes it extra left-leaning. Um, the last one that they have is listed as Atlantic Philanthropies. And I pulled up their Wikipedia page here right now for you. They list themselves as a a uh, philanthropic organization giving information or giving cash on health, social, and politically left-leaning public causes in the United States, Vietnam, South Africa, Ireland, Bermuda, and Australia. Fairly vague. I don't know why that makes them the Atlantic Group, but that's what they are. So that's the about us for JustSecurity.org. The background is when they left a source tells you something that is counter to leftist narrative. I don't think they do it on purpose. They just can't avoid the facts. They actually have a different agenda than what we do, but we're going to just talk about what's true. And they wrote a fantastic article here. This is dated May 8th, 2023. This is a week ago, uh, coming up on 10 days. And the article is entitled U.S. Domestic Terrorism Prosecutions, The Reality Behind the Government's Inflated Numbers. So if we think that the, the left, the political left in this country is the one that's pushing the white supremacy narrative, what in the world are these people interested in? Domestic terrorism also has a dragnet that grabs black and brown people for various different reasons, and that offends these people's sensibilities. It turns out it's not really a political agenda, in my opinion. It's just the fact that our federal government is more than willing to quash the rights of human beings that are living their lives and exercising free speech, and they do so for a significant amount of money. We're going to talk about how much money. This article talks about the 9-11 attacks. This is essentially what we've referred to. There, there's really three buckets of terrorism uh, that the United States government goes after. Number one is international terrorism. That's people that are foreign and they come domestically here to cause uh, damage and try to fear, uh, you know, scare us into political policies and so on. So that's going to be your 9-11s. That's going to be um, some of the other sort of, uh, you know, World Trade Center bombings that happened before that. This is they're not that common. They're kind of a black swan events and they're really dangerous in so much as they can do significant damage and they obviously have no ties to this country. They have ties against this country. The second is known as HVEs or homegrown violent extremists. It's worth noting HVEs sympathize with the ideologies from people overseas, but they are domestic. That would be someone, let's say, in Minneapolis, who is a first or second generation Somali, um, you know, living in the United States, Somali American, but associates with Al-Shabaab and thinks that those ideologies are a proper way to convince Americans of anything. I don't know, Sharia law in that area. And so they may con con conduct some kind of an attack to move forward. Um, that's HVEs. Again, not that common, but that's going to be the ones that justsecurity.org is most concerned about. It's things that uh, people like Trevor Aronson wrote a book about. 
So this is actually, I was actually pointed to this website by Trevor Aronson, who's a left-leaning reporter working for The Intercept and a very good reporter at that. So if you're not reading The Intercept, you're missing out on the other side of the news in many ways. And then the last one is known as DVEs. That's what we're just reading about. That's the domestic violent extremists. Those are people who are from the United States with a domestic concern, a domestic ideology, and they are willing to use terror to accomplish those goals. They want to push and further it. So how much money? Over the last decade, that's going to be, this thing was written in 23, so since 2013, over the last decade, $500 million of government money was used to prosecute federal cases against anybody in the domestic terrorism space. That's DOJ's money. That's not the investigation. That's the prosecution. It's worth noting that because they've claimed that they've won over 2,000 domestic terrorism-related convictions, and they've done almost, it looks like 4,000 cases and indictments from the DOJ. The money from the FBI side is way bigger. Hundreds of billions of dollars a year. Hundreds of millions. So they try to hit these numbers because they're incentivized to do so. I'm going to just pull out some of the most relevant pieces here because this is the, the stuff you should walk around with. They analyzed 4,000 cases from 2006, January of 2006 to September of 2020, right in the middle of COVID. 4,000 cases. It's a nice round number. And the number of cases that they were able to get access to, because a lot of these things have hidden documents and they are not available to the public because the government doesn't believe in transparency. But when they did, if you're looking here, I'm going to highlight this. The, the department went over 1,140, not quite 1,200. So let's just do rough estimates and round it down. We're talking about 25% of the cases that they were able to look at. 25% of the cases, 1,000 out of 4,000 is a pretty good subset for statistical analysis. And of those, only 71 of those cases, which is roughly 6%, was able to make a clear connection to domestic terrorism. And how did they do that? Let's look at the rubric. They looked at the charging documents, which is to say the actual crimes that they were accused of, the sentencing memoranda, which is what the judge looked at and issued when these people were actually sentenced, which is to say that they actually pled guilty. Um, or they were convicted. The request for sentence enhancements, which is going to come from DOJ, that's going to be DOJ saying why this person should have an enhanced sentence, and some of those would be related to terrorist charges. And press releases, which is the DOJ's own words about what they're proud of, what they've done, the charging, the indictment, and so on, the plea deals, and then the, the subsequent sentencing of putting people. 71 of 1,140 were actually connected to domestic terrorism. Of all flavors, by the way, not just white supremacy, all flavors to include all the other stuff we talked about, whether it be animal rights or environmental or anti-abortion or pro, um, what do they call it, or pro-abortion protesters, all these kind of things. So that seems pretty, pretty troubling. Um, what they did is then they asked the, uh, sorry, the, uh, the judge, which was a guy named Judge Moss, to review all of these cases that they had left over, the, the 3,000 that were untouched. And they said, would you please take a look at these and see if our numbers pan out? Is it really only 6% of the so-called domestic terrorism cases actually tying to domestic terrorism? So the judge did what's called an in-camera review of the documents and just a sample of 20. It's just a scooped bucket of 20 additional cases. And of those 20, 19 of them, I'm going to quote the report directly, he found that 19 of 20 cases he reviewed did not, again, did not involve terrorism, but they were mostly personal disputes. And his conclusion was that the government's representation of counter-terrorist efforts is vastly overstated. All right. So what we're talking about is a large look at a, an enormous sample, 4,000 cases, involves you know, tens of thousands of man hours on behalf of the FBI and DHS doing investigations. And they were only able to justify roughly five to 6% of those cases that they called domestic terrorism. That's really dangerous. What that means is that your government is straight lying to you. And 2.2 million people in my Twitter mentions, 2.2 million people were able to see this tweet. And most of them, most of them, the vast majority of them took offense at the fact that I said, White supremacy is overblown. I'm going to tell you what it looks like from my end when you're actually looking at a white supremacy case. The, the information that we were given was almost always the same. This is a white supremacist. That's it. Well, what have they done? 
shrugs, confusion. Um, he's on Reddit. He said some things. He had some racist tweets. He's friends with people who are associated with white supremacy. To be fair, many of you are too, whether you know it or not, because they've tagged white supremacists everywhere. When you are a, a hammer, you're looking for a nail. The government is the hammer. The nail is white supremacy. They find it behind every corner. I've mentioned on this podcast a number of times that I got briefings in 2017. That's exactly when they started pushing this narrative. Those briefings were incredibly ill-informed. They were talking about the Proud Boys. They talked about the Oath Keepers. They talked about the Three Percenters. They talked about all these different groups, and they associated anti-government feelings with white supremacy. I don't know why. I don't actually know the motivation other than it's an enemy of the political left. But here's the thing. I don't know anybody on the political right that sympathizes with white supremacists. In fact, you know, there's plenty of people in the in the public sphere that will tell you there is nothing more nasty than the way the left treats black, brown, otherwise, you know, different skin colors that are also conservative. Uh, anybody can look at, you know, the way that the the L.A. Times referred to Larry Elder when he was running for governor or when he was running, you know, I, I don't know if he's put his hat in for president in some sort of way, but he's, you know, he's put his name in as a potential political candidate and they called him the white, or what do they call him? The black face of, of white supremacy. And they're happy to talk about the brown face of white supremacy. Anybody that apologizes for conservative positions is essentially a white supremacist, which was my response to most people on Twitter. It's like everybody who disagrees with me is a white supremacist. That's what it looks like to be a zombie, folks. It looks like Everybody who disagrees with me is a white supremacist. And that's the way that they respond. And then if you tell them that, they immediately just block you. Uh, if you tell that to somebody in person, they won't have anything to answer. They don't have statistics like we just read from a leftist organization supported by George Soros to tell you that, in fact, maybe 5 or 6% of the overall charged cases are, in fact, domestic terrorism of any flavor, let alone white supremacy. In my experience, it's way more. It's far more than 90% of the cases are complete garbage. So most cases look like this. 20-something-year-old white male goes to Starbucks, wears sneakers and you know khakis and a polo shirt, and is on the phone tweeting or on Reddit in some sort of racial forum saying things that are probably awful, but constitutionally protected in this country. And that will get the FBI looking into you. They don't have any plans for violence. And you wonder, well, Kyle, how do you know that? Well, I know that because we introduced undercovers. So generally speaking, when you get involved in one of these groups, they're fairly infiltrated by confidential human informants, confidential human sources, either by the FBI, by the local police departments, by state entities, by DHS, so on and so forth. They move these people into a space so that we can keep track of this so-called threat. This goes back to the FBI's, you know, clan fighting days when they were doing this in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, interestingly enough, the FBI sort of espoused some white supremacy beliefs, or maybe they just uh, didn't like Martin Luther King Jr. and the and the civil rights movement. At the same time, they're also supposed to go after the clan. I don't know if it's because they sympathize with the clan or what, but you have these two very strange ideas sort of fighting each other in the FBI's history today, very good at infiltrating these groups because they have a historical precedent for causing violence. And I don't think that's terrible per se, although I think that the, the First Amendment liberties are 100% infringed upon. All right. So we do this this uh, infiltration. We put a, a confidential human source. The source's job is to introduce an undercover you want to know what it looks like to be part of an undercover op, it looks like you met a new friend, they get along with you, they're really enthusiastic about all your terrible ideas, and then they want to teach you or introduce you to a new friend, and that new friend is able to help you carry those ideas out. That friend is an undercover, that's a fed, and what they do is offer you guns and money and explosives and planning and tactics and capabilities so that you can sign on to a terrible plot and then go to jail for your white supremacy and or anti-government, anti-authority, or militia violent extremist ideologies, which are constitutionally protected. So when they do put these undercovers in, the undercover's job is to push forward for a case. Their job is to get people to say yes, that they're interested. They are trying to suss out in an investigative way whether or not this is a legitimate threat. And overwhelmingly, and I've covered the meetings and then we get the debriefs after the the undercovers go in. We've sat out there in parking lots of restaurants and coffee table, you know, coffee shops, um, gun range trips, 
parks, and so on. And all of these things come down to the same. They're not actually interested in doing a violent act. They're just talking online. They're just mouthing off. And that sort of thing is supposed to be protected from government overreach. It's not, but it's supposed to be. What the FBI does traditionally is they put a little caveat on every one of these reports, and it just says, First Amendment caveat, um, the FBI doesn't look into people specifically for you know free speech, for freedom of religion, their assembly, and so on. That's false. They do, 100%. They just put a caveat on there, and that's what Chris Ray always reads. In fact, he's used that as his defense for um, the way the FBI handles business. It's kind of gross to listen to it. Uh, it is just the nature of the way they do operations. I will give you one concrete example. That is not to say that there are no white supremacy types that are out there looking to do violence. There was one example, and it goes back to probably, 20, probably 2020, if I have to dig through my memory banks, of all the cases that we ran down. And we ran down, I don't know, a dozen a year or more. This one actually was supposedly going to actually get violent. And this was a Canadian, of all people, who had been out of their United States military, sorry, who had been in the Canadian military, not the United States. He snuck into the United States by avoiding ports of entry, avoiding border checkpoints, and he crept all the way down to Canada. I can't remember his name. You can look it up if you want. Somebody can throw it out there in, uh, in the chat if they want. The, the guy was uh, associated with a group called The Base, which I believe was a play on, on Al-Qaeda. And the base was a neo-Nazi group, allegedly, whatever that means. And then he snuck down to Atlanta, hung out with his buddies there. The FBI was on to him right away. They were actually national news stories saying that nobody knew where he was and he was on the loose. That was false the entire time. The FBI was tracking his movements and knew where he was the entire time he was in the U.S. They followed him from Atlanta to the edge of the state of Virginia. My team picked him up from the surveillance team that followed him there, and we followed him all the way to Maryland. We put him down in a business or in a, a like an outbuilding of this this business or this sort of rural um, uh, sort of property, whatever it was. And then a couple of days later, a SWAT team came in and took him into custody along with two buddies. One of the buddies looked like this sort of like acneed and, and sort of ugly version of Ed Sheehan, kind of goofy looking redhead. And then the uh, the Canadian was taken into custody as well. None of these guys were able to commit any violence, but supposedly they were talking about doing something maybe in Baltimore because it's a very black city. I have no idea why you'd want to go do anything in Baltimore. Baltimore tears itself apart as it is. You don't need any help to make Baltimore worse. But uh, supposedly they had bomb-making equipment and things like that when they did the search. So that's the only one, and, and, and none of that says they were actually going to go use it. For all I know, they were going to blow stuff up on this farm or you know, not be able to blow stuff up because they didn't know how to build bombs. But the Canadian that came in that was part of the Canadian military was alleged to be a an, an expert in explosives, I think. They said he was an explosives expert. And I don't know what that meant because they never substantiated what training he had. Like, I don't know if he was an engineer, a combat engineer, which maybe he was then an expert. Um, but end of the day, they could say the same thing about someone like me who's gone through a basic explosive course. You know, I know how to use C4. I know how to use dynamite. I know how to use electric and non-electric initiations. So... You know, I built shape charges. I built improvised explosive devices using commercial and, and otherwise. End of the day, is he an explosive expert? I don't know. Using household materials? Maybe. Maybe he was just capable of using the stuff they had in the military. It, uh, it really helps when you actually have the the professional tools that you would have as part of the member of the military. And it's not like you can run off with those things, generally speaking. Um, taking demo off the demo range, not very easy. Usually ends up in a bad way. All right, so... That's what white supremacy looks like when people are out there defending it. It tells me that they don't actually understand what's going on and that their position is not even united, but they are mindless and they are willing to go after sort of the Joe Biden piece of it. Uh, we did about a half hour on that. I, I think that's enough for you to understand that this is not a real threat. It's not real in the way that uh, anybody should be concerned about it. It's something you should just be aware that the talking points keep getting marched out. And then we can kind of pivot and we'll talk about the Durham report, which you want to talk about talking points. We've seen the same sort of zombie narrative. And when you start deconstructing these things, they literally just melt down. They fall apart. The The Durham report, I think, was kind of like the bookend to the Mueller report. The Mueller report was a deep state attempt to show that there was Russian collusion between the Trump administration or the Trump um, campaign, rather, and the Russian government. They came up with nothing. They came up with no ability, but they sort of still said, we don't like Trump. We don't like the way he did things, but he didn't break any laws, so no indictments. 
And that was very disappointing for the political left. I think that the Durham report actually says it has the same effect, but it's actually the opposite. It says there was an incredibly damning weaponization of the FBI, that Trump was right, that he is 100% vindicated in saying the FBI was coming to get him. And we know who the players were that were driving it. So the uh, the report itself, which we will pull up in a second. First, I want to get sort of a, um, a, a non-balanced perspective on it. So I'm going to switch you over here. I'm going to give you my former boss. This was the deputy director when I came in, and he was the acting director of the FBI while I was at Washington Field saying his piece on Anderson Cooper on CNN. So you know we're going to get only the most trusted news. This is uh, former, former FBI agent, former deputy director Andy McCabe beginning exactly what John Durham was going to conclude. And that's what we saw today. We knew from the very beginning this was never a legitimate investigation. This was a political errand to exact some sort of retribution on Donald Trump's perceived enemies in the FBI. That's what Mr. Durham has done. And you stand by the original Russia investigation? Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, the mis- So for those of you who cannot see what he just did, he shook his head and said, absolutely. There's some really funny uh, quirky mannerisms that people have, these micro expressions that they do when they are disavowing their actual actions. And he literally said, I'm going to actually play it one more time. So if you haven't seen this, you can come to the 35 minute mark here on the show and take a look at this 36 minutes, maybe. And check this out. Here he goes again. Anderson Cooper asked him, do you stand by your original assessment opening this do- this uh, investigation, which was Crossfire Hurricane? And you stand by the original Russia investigation? Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, the mistakes with the Carter Page FISA were were regrettable, should never have happened. And had I known about those mistakes in the packages, I never would have signed those applications. I don't believe you. Um, That's Andy McCabe giving his take on it. Like I said, absolutely. They would have still done this thing. They still would have opened it up. And he's politically motivated. The guy's wife took money from Terry McAuliffe's cutouts. She was running for office as a Democrat that he immediately ordered outside of policy. Peter Strzok to go and do this crossfire hurricane. They opened it up on an allegation. I'm going to actually show you. Um, I'm going to read you something probably off my phone. It's it's that from the Diog. The Diog is the FBI's domestic investigations operation guide. What it says is, is that and, and actually just uh, just security dot org posted the Diog that they got in a uh, in a FOIA. And what it shows is that you cannot open a full investigation with simply an unsubstantiated allegation. You have to open a preliminary investigation, which is the right thing. And then funnily enough, I actually got blocked by Peter Strzok on Twitter yesterday because I tweeted at him that he did it wrong. And it's funny that he was out there, you know, claiming that the Clintons were actually being treated unfairly, which is absurd because they actually got away with all the things they were actually shut down, which I'm going to give you some, some quotes from that as well. But the, uh, the dialogue actually tells you how to do it, and they did the wrong thing. Rather than uh, take my word on it, why don't we take on uh, our friend FBI Barbie here? This is Nicole Parker. As you know, this this person drives Steve Friend, a frequent guest of our show and a buddy of mine, fellow suspendable, absolutely up the wall. But this is a woman that Fox News thinks is relevant. I want you to listen to this for as long as we can handle it, and you tell me if there's any information being passed along in this particular Fox segment. This is so strange that they spend their time on it. To put this in perspective, one line of this that sort of sums up the where this entire Durham report went for the better part of four years, based on the review of Crossfire Hurricane, looking into this whole matter, by the way, and related intelligence activities, we conclude uh, that uh, the Justice Department and FBI failed to uphold their important mission to strict fidelity to the law in connection with certain events and activities described in this report. So he's quoting the report. That is an understatement. The Nicole wince at this, that, that, this is, that, that this was your this was your home, this was your base, this was your very DNA, and something like this happened. What do you think? You know, Neil, I have appeared on your program and on other programs recently, and it's sad to say, but this is exactly why I left the FBI. This confirms uh, my decision to leave the FBI after serving with honor when I was working, you know, cases such as violent crime, um, crimes against children, uh, white collar crime. Something of this nature takes down the entire organization. And I, I, you know, they say, oh, it's 2016, 2017, the FBI's made reforms. I understand. I was an FBI agent. 
I had to be held accountable for other people's choices that had nothing to do with me. Several thousands of agents that had nothing to do with this. We all had stuff. to take the Let's hit for forward, this. Uh, we all was not involved. Thousands were not involved. But you know what the unfortunate part is? The entire organization is now taking the hit. And it is unacceptable. You take an oath. You swear to uphold the Constitution of the United States of America with the highest level. She reminds me of that girl um, that was that was in one of the beauty pageants that said that she believes that maybe because of maps and because of the Iraq, uh, that's kind of the way that she presents herself. I don't think she knows anything. She's never worked counterintelligence from what we can tell. So she doesn't have any experience in what you can or cannot do to open an intelligence investigation. They're very different. But what she does have experience in apparently is handling hundreds of murders. I actually had a local sheriff who is a retired FBI agent with multiple years. If you guys have seen our episode with Mark Kreider, he and I still talk. He called me yesterday and he goes, what's the story with this Nicole Parker? You know, where did she come from? And how is it that she's done all these things? And I go, well, let me just tell you this. She was the coordinator for crimes on the high seas out of the Miami field office. And the funny thing about being an FBI agent with the title coordinator, if you are the the um, the applicant coordinator, you are not investigating cases. If you are the high seas crime coordinator, you're not investigating cases. You're simply taking paper from somebody else and you're putting it into a file that the Bureau maintains, or you're actually going out and setting up some kind of events. You know, the public affairs coordinator, the diversity coordinator. You're not doing work. You're not running FBI investigations into federal crimes. So I don't know how much work she actually did, but her reputation in Miami is suboptimal with people that I respect highly. They said that she managed to show up on crime scenes where she had no business being. She always had on her raid jacket. Her hair was always done nicely with perfect makeup. And then she always staged herself in front of a camera somewhere. So I don't know if this was all about her uh, trying to show and preen, but she's not particularly articulate. She doesn't necessarily have a perspective and she doesn't say anything about the Durham report. I don't even know if she read it. You know, all she did was mention the constitutional oath. That's essentially stealing the uh, the talking points that the the suspendables have been putting out for a while. And that's one of the things that really upsets my buddy Steve Friend. Let's talk about the actual the actual report. And uh, and there's plenty of stuff in here. I'm going to switch over and show you a picture of this. This can be found if you want to read 306 pages of this nonsense. It's at uh, justice.org. I've moved my screen above me now. So if you're looking on the Rumble channel wondering why I keep looking up instead of left, I try to move it in uh, central. This is the name of the report. It is the report on matters related to intelligence activities and investigations arriving out of the 2016 presidential campaigns. Kind of a broad topic. And the special counsel actually narrows it down. I'm going to roll down here and kind of give you what they believe the scope of their questioning was supposed to answer. It's worth noting that because they tell you about all the backstory here. There's a full executive summary. But the uh, the assessment of what went on, here it is. Uh, my apologies as we scroll through this thing. Here's the conclusion. This is the executive summary conclusion. There is, There are hundreds of pages worth of documents that kind of back this stuff up. But this is what they said. Based on the review of Crossfire Hurricane, again, the investigation into Trump, which was an intel investigation, it wasn't looking for a crime per se, and related intelligence activities, we conclude that the department and the FBI failed to uphold their important mission of strict fidelity to the law in connection with certain events and activities described in this report. As noted, former FBI attorney Kevin Kleinsmith, you'll remember him, he committed perjury, uh, and then he... He uh, fabricated documents. He committed a criminal offense by fabricating language in an, in an email that was material to the FBI obtaining a FISA surveillance order. In other instances, FBI personnel working on the same FISA application displayed at best a cavalier attitude towards accuracy and completeness. That might be the best line of the entire thing. A cavalier attitude towards accuracy and completeness. That also sits very well with our sort of zombie apocalypse scenario that white supremacy is coming for all of us. It's a little bit cavalier with the facts that there are less than 10% and probably less than 5% of the overall cases tagged with white supremacy even involve any domestic terrorism, let alone white supremacy specifically. So worth noting, um, the, the real pieces here that, that are of, of serious concern for me are the discussions of how they opened these things up in it and, and how they violated FBI policy in order to do so. It makes reference here, if you're looking in this particular document online, you're going to see the AGG DOM, that's the Attorney General Guidelines for Domestic Intelligence and Domestic Operations. This is the, the sort of the Bible of FBI policy. And Peter Strzok, 
and Andy McCabe, both of whom appeared to be very cavalier with their attitudes, as as uh, as Durham stated. They just did their own thing. What they did is they also cut out here the 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 requirements in order to do any type of investigation. There are three levels of FBI investigation. The lowest is an assessment. There's no such thing as a probe, by the way. You hear it in the media all the time. There is no probe. Assessment, preliminary investigation, full investigation, and criteria that can be used therein. The FBI can open an assessment if it has an authorized purpose and a clearly defined objective. That means that there is a very low bar to open it. They have an authorized purpose and they are defining what they need to find out. We want to find out whether or not there was election interference. We want to find out whether or not there was a Russian cutout to the Trump campaign. That's an assessment. The preliminary investigation is based on information or allegation that a federal crime has taken place or that a threat to national security may be occurring. This can come from an unvetted source, including a brand new CHS, a confidential human source that has made a credible allegation. You can open up an assessment to determine whether or not it's true. And that would have been the appropriate at the highest level that they could have opened. But instead, they jumped directly to a full investigation. And that is the standard for opening a full investigation is the articulable, factual basis for the investigation that reasonably indicates activity constituting a federal crime or a threat to national security is or may be occurring, and the investigation may obtain information related to that activity. So I'm going to say it again because it's worth quoting that when you open a full FBI investigation, you get all the tools, particularly when you're doing national security, and there are ways that you can do so. You have to have the articulable the articulable factual basis for the investigation that reasonably indicates that they are going to be able to find the information about a federal crime. You have to know that not only did this thing possibly occur, and it seems like there's a better than average chance it did, but also that you're going to be able to get information about it through your investigative activities. That is not the case of some random Australian uh, intel source saying, you know, we heard a story about this. That's at a preliminary investigation at best. All right. And then there's all kinds of guidelines about how to do analytical integrity. There's a piece on here. Uh, there's a piece of the Durham report that says that they actually failed in their their academic rigor, their their um, analytic rigor to to vet this material. And you say, well, the FBI has put out a statement. They said that they fixed this in 2016 and 2017. What they did is they had us, uh, the, us being the agents working this type of stuff. Everybody who might touch a FISA had to take new training on how to handle a FISA. The problem with that is, is that it had nothing to do with the agents doing FISA. I watched guys doing FISA. They do a great job of it. You know, there are whole squads of men and women that are doing FISAs and they are doing a good job on it. They are keeping track of forward intelligence because that's their job and they do it with rigor. It's what happened at headquarters between two of the highest ranked people in the FBI at the time. The deputy director, Andy McKay, was number two in the FBI. And then you had an assistant deputy, or sorry, a deputy assistant director, a DAD of counterintelligence. That was Peter Strzok. And they played fast and loose with the, the rules. Interesting enough, that sort of crappy ability to adhere to policy has gone all the way down to the field office level, which is what we saw in the Richmond field office with the radical traditionalist Catholic document. It lacked analytic rigor. They used bad sources. This is a pervasive problem in intelligence because once you are looking to confirm your own biases, you are willing to do anything to get you there. This is the big concern. It's an ongoing concern and it is a cultural problem. It is not a technical problem. It is not a rules-based or policy or procedures problem in the FBI. It's cultural. It is cultural to Intel agencies that are looking to affirm their own thoughts. Allow me to scroll down here a little bit. I'm going to do a couple of quick quotes that I think are worth noting um, about how badly they did this investigation. Well, I think we've actually gone too far. Um, <laughs> bear with me. I'm going to end up switching over here. I'm going to pull up the Twitter feed because the Twitter feed that I put out actually had all the best quotes that I was interested in. So I will share them with you. If you don't follow me on Twitter, you could do so at Kyle Serafin and that's where I put out a lot of the stuff. When I started reading this, I, I, I essentially just rage tweeted the the most important quotes. I've shared these in a number of different programs um, when it comes to being on national media. 
Here we go. We'll read upwards. Here are the quotes that I found to be very telling. They're all uh, tagged with the hashtag Durham report. There's a lot of other people that did so as well. And I CC the FBI on my on my tweets because I think they should hear how bad it was. Quote, the speed and manner in which the FBI opened and investigated Crossfire Hurricane reflected a noticeable departure from how it approached matters prior involving possible attempted foreign election interference plans aimed at the Clinton campaign. So they have set up in the Durham report the difference between the way the Clintons were treated and the way that Trump's campaign was treat, uh, treated. Treated. <laughs> Bad news. Another one. And a third investigation. There were multiple investigations, by the way, into the Clinton Foundation, which was part of the Clinton campaign investigations. Okay. In a third investigation, the Clinton Foundation matter, both senior FBI and department officials, that's DOJ, placed restrictions on how those matters were to be handled, such that essentially no investigative activities occurred months leading up to the election. In layman's terms, they shut down the investigations. They put the brakes on and they put so many restrictions on the agents investigating the Clintons that they were unable to actually accomplish a real investigation. So they they were essentially let go scot-free. They didn't have any reason um, to, to necessarily interact with those. That may be appropriate. It's called a sensitive investigative matter for a reason. Those things are sensitive and they can actually move the the way the uh, you know a political campaign goes. So they shut those things down. That was not the case for Trump. Okay. So I also tweeted out something to the effect of, hey, everybody always wants to know what happened to the Clinton Foundation. Why didn't they continue doing those investigations? The reason is because she ran for president. That doesn't turn out to be a safe haven for people like Donald Trump. And then lastly, Crossfire Hurricane, again, the name of the investigation, the counterintelligence investigation into the Donald Trump campaign and members around him, was, quote, markedly different from the FBI's actions with respect to other highly significant intelligence pointing to a Clinton campaign plan to vilify Trump by tying him to Vladimir Putin so as to divert attention from her use of a private, private email server. And the last and most damning, at the direction of Deputy Director Andy McCabe, DAD for counterintelligence, Peter Strzok, they opened Crossfire Hurricane immediately as a full investigation. Strzok had pronounced hostile feelings towards Trump, and the matter was opened as a full investigation without verifying the source. The source was an Australian intel source that was unvetted and previously, and as far as I know, was never actually interviewed by the FBI in order to obtain veracity and what we would call validation. They didn't validate the source. They simply went after Trump because it fit their political narrative. And we've known that for a long time, but now it's in the public sphere. And even people like Jake Tapper have to eat a little bit of crow, but they still are going to caveat this thing. They're going to still say, well, it it sort of validates what Trump said. No. Hard stop. No, it completely validates what he said. Guys like Cash Patel, Guys like Devin Nunes, who were out there saying this from the beginning, going back as far as 2017, 2018, this was always the case. This investigation was bogus. They should never have opened it. People defending their positions, this Andy McCabe clip that I showed you, shows you that they will double down on it. But even he doesn't believe it because he says it like this. Yeah, you know, oh, I totally would have opened that Russian, uh, that case up. It's funny how our body betrays us when we say things that we know that we can't even believe. There's no way that would have happened. And then you had Strzok, who was ideologically motivated because he had pillow talk with his uh, his his uh, side piece, who he worked with, Lisa Page. And then we see that they're literally doing pillow talk on government phones because they're such capable operators that they are using a recorded government phone. They're putting all this stuff out there in the sphere that is going to be captured, thinking that they're going to get away with it because they always have, because there are no consequences to the FBI. If you think about it, Peter Strzok got a ton of money coming through a give, send, go, or what do they call them? GoFundMe, if you're on the left, you get a good GoFundMe. Far more money than any of the suspendables were supported with when they came forward with information that was correct. And uh, you also see that you've got a, you know, Peter Strzok got, what, half a million dollars or a million dollars in his. Then he also got his pension back and he was fired for lying. Pretty incredible, pretty disgusting, but it is, it's what you should expect from an FBI that doesn't have any guardrails stopping it from running over the um, running over the First Amendment protected liberties. I want to touch on one more thing. I didn't know if I was going to get to it, but I did want to get to it. It's worth noting. We'll just uh, throw the outrage bomb on you. This is a, something that came from Lee Fang. This is a story that he broke this weekend. Uh, it was on the 12th. 
We're five days later. I'm still seeing people show this on Twitter and they're saying breaking news. It's not breaking at this point, um, but it is shocking. This is a report by Lee Fang, who was part of the Twitter files. Many of you will know he's a good independent journalist. He works alongside Matt Taibbi. It says the FBI surveillance contractor Flashpoint probed anti-vaccine mandate activists. This is yet another First Amendment violation. It falls in there. If you don't fall into the COVID narrative, you are part of the zombie apocalypse. So here it is. Flashpoint was a surveillance contractor. I wanted to show his substack. The uh, The full story is actually covered better because I don't have access to his substack on Christian Health. Uh, the, sorry, the Children's Health Defense Network. This is uh, Robert, Robert F. Kennedy's juniors website about uh anti-vaccine stuff big pharma and they they do a pretty decent little big tech roundup on their news the defender is like their newsletter and their their publication what they said was is that this flashpoint contractor which was famous during war on terror stuff they actually made a bunch of money working for the fbi doing surveillance when we say surveillance we're talking about ai based and um online you know scrolling and scanning and what they do is they've been infiltrating telegram groups, specifically closed channels like U.S. Freedom Flyers. And that was a group of no mask, no vaccine airline and, um, you know, flight attendants and pilots and crew members that didn't want to be infringed upon. Um, this contractor went out there and was able to infiltrate their telegram group and then bragged about it in a presentation to their stockholders and to people as they were trying to sell their products and they get paid by the fbi it says in this case we're searching for a closed channel of u.s freedom flyers it's basically a group opposed to vaccination and masks so they showed all the sort of work that they were trying to do to get into these private chats the way that they create bot accounts that can enter in uh, and they sell this sort of quote unquote threat intelligence to People like the FBI, they get into Discord chats, they get into WhatsApp groups, they get into Reddit forums and dark web message boards, gathering information for clients, including the FBI and other corporations, could have also been uh, paid for by the airline industry itself. I was actually a member of a couple of these things. There's one that's called Move Freely, you, uh, Move Freely America, and they were uh, the same thing. All they wanted to do was medical freedom and a bill of rights that said that if you didn't have the vaccine and you were allowed to not have the vaccine in your state, which was everywhere, then uh, if you went to somewhere like California or New York or Maine and you got into an accident, if you broke an arm, if you were injured or got very sick, that the hospital would be required to treat you. That's all that they were trying to push. But instead, you've got the United States government spying on them. This stuff is really, really dangerous. It's what happens when you have a captive media and you have a captive political narrative coming out of the leftist side that says anybody who doesn't agree with the government's position is dangerous. Um, if you'll remember, the people that didn't agree with the government's position founded this country. That's what the founding fathers did. That is the way that they operated, and they overthrew it for far less than this. The British government was infringing far less than what we see the United States government. I am confident that our founding fathers are not just rolling, but also spinning like helicopter blades in their graves, unfortunately, because we have given away all of this capability. We have allowed a government to overstep all of its bounds and it's pretty terrifying stuff. I'm going to wrap it up. We're going to go on uh, tomorrow. I expect to do a live stream. They are going to have all of the suspendables that I care to see. They're going to have Garrett O'Boyle. They're going to have a guy who I don't know, but I, I like his story. His name is Marcus Allen. He's a, a Marine Corps veteran and was an, uh, an Intel guy. He was actually working as an SOS in, um, in the FBI's field office. I can't remember what field office he was in somewhere down south, maybe Atlanta. Um, Marcus Allen is going to be testifying in front of Congress, as is Stephen Friend, our buddy. Uh, I've already heard their opening statements. They are powerful and strong. I will be covering them in real time. We'll do a live stream with kind of a mystery science theater reaction to what goes on, and we will lampoon the Democrat comments that are going to obviously going to be attacking the messenger. My boys are very well prepared. They've been um, what they called murder boarded, which is to say they were asked all the questions that they could be. They have been prepped as witnesses, so they will be able to answer themselves. End of the day, they have the armor of God and the armor of truth on. I have no fear that the suspendables will be embarrassed. Uh, I am scared that they may get angry <laughs> because my buddy Garrett is a big dude. He at 6'1", 6'2", he weighs about 275 pounds. He's got shoulder length, long black hair. You guys are going to finally get to see him and he will be on the show soon. I'm sure of it. He's giving a, uh, a Jesse Kelly, ex uh, sorry, not a Jesse Kelly, a Jesse Waters exclusive tomorrow. So look for Fox to have um, Jim Jordan, Steve Friend, and suspendable Garrett O'Boyle, who actually... I'm going to stand up a bit here. If you're on the Rumble channel, you can see he has a, a substack called The Last Line. This is his T-shirt, Last Line Strength. I've been wearing it all day in support. You can't see it because the chat's covering me up right now. But uh, Garrett is going to be public soon, 
And uh, I look forward to hearing what he has to say and being able to get his voice out there. He's been waiting for this for quite a long time. Folks, this is the Kyle Serafin Show that you've been listening to. Very appreciative for your time. We are very appreciative for you showing up here and listening to us every morning. If you like what you hear, please hit the like button. If you're watching us on Rumble, you can subscribe to the channel there as well. I would appreciate that. It grows our reach and it helps more people see it. Um, moreover, if you want to leave us a five-star review on Apple, we have broken 450 five-star ratings. We are 5.0 out of five on Apple. Simply outstanding. I'm going to read a, uh, a quick review. If you want your review read, go ahead and leave it there. Type me up something and I will read them on the show. This one is by Rob Osborne. Rob, thanks for the review. Five stars, my favorite. Excellent job. You are exposing government corruption like no one else and I truly appreciate it. I used to trust the CIA and FBI. And now I see that those survivalist conspiracy believing people I used to think were nuts were weren't. I think he misspelled weren't. The proofreading, not so strong. Oh, big deal. It says, do not trust the government, especially the federal government. Of course, Rob, you're correct. That is the case. You got to watch out for all the three-letter agencies. They all are looking for themselves. They're looking for their own budgets. That is how the government works. Thanks for leaving us the five-star review. Five, 451. Let's get it up to 500. Let's break that 500 mark. So please leave us a five-star review today if you haven't done so already on Apple. You can click the link in the description below. Check out our sponsors again, patriotcoolers.com, promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E. Check out catholicvote.org. My friends at The Loop there, you can get their newsletter. It costs you nothing, and you'll be informed on Christian-related politics and uh, things that are going on both in the Catholic Church and in the Christian faith in this country, particularly threats to pro-life causes and so on. Check them out. Folks, we will see you again. I'm going to be on here tomorrow, rumbling live. We will be streaming the Weaponization Committee, so look for that. I will check you again. We'll open up the uh, the chat and do the same format here. I'll do a picture-in-picture picture and scan it. Look forward to seeing you then. Thanks so much. And we'll follow up again on Friday with another review of the current events. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin. 